The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church, both in person and online. We're glad that you're able to participate with us. So we want to welcome again Alex and Elizabeth Wheeler into our midst and grateful for their ministry and report this morning, ministry yesterday, and what will come yet today and fellowship that we'll be able to share with them again after a little absence from us and many travels since the last time they were here in our parts. We enjoyed yesterday working with Alex and Elizabeth and about eight other people on our team uh, working on some scripture um, programs, apps, as they're called, on Android phones. And so what we're doing is taking the work of the translators, and they give us basically what you can think of uh, simply as a, uh, a file of uh, Bible verses, chapters, books. And it's on the computer, it's all there, but it's not in a format that's easily uh, observable by an outside person. It's not in a, a nice, you know, like like this. Uh, or an app on the phone. So we do some machinations on it to uh, turn it into an app where you can tap on the screen of your phone and bring up this book or that book, this chapter and that verse, and it makes it very convenient. So we did that with four new-to-us uh, languages yesterday, and uh, languages in India and Myanmar, and then um, we worked on uh, two of our guys are kind of the real high-powered guys, I'll call them, high, high-tech high uh, programmers, and they are working on extricating uh, the text from old formats into what we can use today. So part of our work is also preservation of the text. Um, maybe you can imagine back with me to when you had your first computer, some of you older folks, and it had a floppy disk drive in it. And uh, so some of these files were produced on computers like that, and then they became stuck in that format and technology. So I have been working with some of our team members on two translations that were done back in the 1970s and 80s, and we're trying to recover those into a useful format today so that they can be used again and put into an app form and and then revised uh, in the future if that's so desired. So uh, you might think, well, once it's in the computer, it's good, you know. Well, Unless you keep updating it or keep it in the current technology, once the floppy disk drive died and was no longer, then what do you do? And uh, if it's stuck on a computer and that computer doesn't have a way to plug into a network, then what do you do? And so on and so forth. So it can get trapped in that old system and then you lose all the hours and years worth of work. So that to us is an intolerable uh, situation. So we've got to fix that. So uh, Bible app development, digital uh, preservation, and restoration of texts to a useful format. That's what uh, we were working on yesterday. That was our actually our 10th uh, team meeting together over two and a half years. Um, we uh, called it uh, hackathon number nine because we had one meeting we did that didn't get a number in the series, but uh, that's okay. So uh, next will be hack. 10, which we're going to call Hack X, just to be cool. Uh, so uh, that's what we're uh, that's what we're up to. So well, we're not sure when that'll be March or April, maybe. But uh, continue to pray for that work. And uh, I found yesterday we are now uh, some have asked how many end users. And uh, although it seems in a sense it seems big for us, it's small. Uh, we have over 9,000 people using the Bibles that we've done now. So uh, that started out in the hundreds and low thousands, now at 9,000. We're heading toward 10,000, and then we're going to go up from there. So um, actually, it's, it's, a, it's a nice you know, numeric kind of metric, but I'll tell you the sad reality. In the language groups of, that we've done translations for, about 50 there are 57 million souls that speak those languages. There's a lot of work to do to get God's Word into the hands of people who desperately need it and don't even know it yet, many of them. 
millions and millions of souls. So we're just making a small dent. But uh, for those ones that have been reached with the word through Bibles International's ministry, uh, the, uh, it's making a huge difference for them, even if it's a small number. Um, and that's okay. So uh, we don't despise the day of small things, and uh, God is in those things as well. So we're trusting him to uh, bring an increase to the work as he sees fit. Um, tonight we have at 6 o'clock our evening service, and it'll be a little, our normal kind of opening part of the service will be a little abbreviated, a scripture reading, maybe a hymn, prayer, and then we are inviting Mariano Proto and his wife Becky and their son Enzo to participate with us live from uh, Uruguay. So they will be not here, but they'll be here. Uh, they'll be maybe there <laughs> on the cement block wall. And so uh, we look forward to that, kind of made this a missionary uh, Sunday. But uh, we were able to recently send them uh, just about $4,400 to work on their uh, church building. In fact, we were able to send uh, through uh, generous donations to the church that same amount of money to a church building project, theirs in Uruguay, another one, Tim Gosens in Argentina, and a third one, David Flinks in northern Chile. And we also were able to give that amount to Bibles International for printing of the next Bible that is on their uh, to-do list So uh, for the print copies. So God has really uh, blessed and allowed us to participate financially that way in some of those ministries. And we are, th- we are thankful for that. But as uh, we had already planned to have the protos at some point this year, but this timing works very well. They want to give us a word of thanks and uh and just show us what's been going on. Uh, remember, uh, I told you last time, in the uh, building that they purchased, that they're using for their church, they don't even have a bathroom. So uh, the latest work that they've been doing was tearing up the floor and putting in this kind of sewer system, That, however they do it down there. And so you'll see some pictures from that for the plumbing. So... Uh, <laughs> Basic things, you know, but a wonderful opportunity that we have to participate with them. So our scripture reading is found in Isaiah 15 and 16. Isaiah 15, please. As you know, we're reading through scripture together as a church and we're in this section of Isaiah now. So we just take it as it comes today. Proclamation and destruction of Moab. The burden against Moab, verse 1 says, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, he has gone up to the temple and Dibon, to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Eleala will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. For by the ascent of Luhith, they will go up with weeping. For in the way of Horonayim... They will raise up a cry of destruction. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate. For the green grass has withered away. The grass fails. There is nothing green. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglayim and it's wailing to Beer Elim. For the waters of Demon will be full of blood. Because I will bring more upon Demon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. And then chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. 
In mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Kir. Haraseth, you shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elelah, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Harris. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Amen. Thus says God's word. Ancient as it is. Amen. One of our brothers asked yesterday at the men's prayer meeting, so uh, not for himself, but for a little ministry we're thinking about doing. Uh, so how do we know that the Bible's real? Remember that, brother? So I'm going to turn the question around and ask you. How do you know? How do you know what you believe? Why do you believe what the Bible says? Why, why do you believe the Scriptures? You know, the Scriptures are a kind of a unique thing because they come from a unique source. God is the supreme king, judge, potentate, power in the universe and outside of the universe for that matter. There is no higher court to which you can appeal to say, well, let's take this Bible and let's judge it. Let's put it to the test. If something's happened to you as a believer where the Spirit of God has come into your life and caused you to embrace the truth of the Word of God and to accept it and to know it's true, maybe you could answer that question for yourself. How, how do I know? How do I... How do I know that what I believe is real? And think about that for a minute. And then answer that question when, somebody, when you want to share it with somebody else. Just answer it how you know. How you know. And I heard some brother talking about the resurrection. Certainly a good evidence of the reality of our faith. Maybe you could say the highest, maybe human evidence or, you know, whatever, evidence. But... Uh, there's a lot there to think about and to chew on. But uh, the Bible is true. Uh, not whether doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It is true. And uh, we need to obey it and keep its precepts and love the Word of God because of what God has done. And So, there's a lot more I could say there, but I'm going to get to preaching and that's not my role this morning. So, I'm going to give up now and... Uh, and invite uh, in a moment Alex to come to the pulpit again. And uh, before I'll just give a short introduction, but be prepared because I want you to bring Elizabeth up and introduce her so that our audience on the computer can see that she actually is here and she is real and not just in pictures up there on the, on the screen. So one of our brothers suggested that we we do that. So uh, we want to. Uh, just give that honor to whom honor is due. 
Um, Alex and I, as we indicated earlier, met uh, at the seminary in Detroit and have had a uh, connection off and on over the years since that time. It's probably been uh, 15 years, plus or minus, we'll say, that we've known each other. And uh, lots of emails back and forth, some phone calls. Uh, we've uh, had the joy of having uh, them both in our home a number of times, and they helped us, as I indicated earlier yesterday at the uh, hackathon, working on the Bible uh, translations. We wanted, Alex wanted to participate, and maybe he'll say some more about that, but I was glad that he could and Elizabeth could because then they could see the whole team of people working behind the scenes, and also they could see what some of the kind of things that we run into are. So it kind of helps them put on our shoes and walk in our shoes for a mile or two so they can see that. And um, so... Uh, that's good, I think, for the interconnectivity of our team with Bibles International and with their work in Scripture engagement and all of that. So uh, Alex reminded that uh, I had taught a Hebrew class that he was in, and uh, I kind of had overlooked that. So now uh, those skills, he's advanced far beyond that class that I taught and uh, is using that in the Bible translation work and helping uh, multiple language groups get their Bibles uh, well, before, translated, now uh, in use. And that's really, really, really important. We don't want to do all the work and then have it just sit on the shelf and not get used. So anyway, so Alex and Elizabeth Wheeler, God bless you and thank you. Please both come up and then we'll let Alex uh, preach this morning. We're looking forward to the word. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Pastor. Uh, we are very, very glad to, to be here with you and to be partnered with you. And uh, as I may have mentioned the last time we were here as well, and as Pastor has just said, we are, you are partnering with us in ways that I would, I guess I could say no other church uh, that we attend, uh, we, we visit from time to time has done so. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the hackathon folks and the people who have, have worked there. And um, our, both of our hearts are blessed this morning also to realize that uh, your, your minds and attention are on uh, the Bibles International works as well uh, in terms of the donations that you've made recently to one of the, the translation projects. And we want to say uh, from us and from BI, thank you very, very much for that as well. Um, the Lord has given me a, a wonderful teammate in lots of respects, but also uh, in terms of her work as a graphic designer, uh, Elizabeth is, is very, very much involved in the work, uh, although not officially on the payroll. She, she gives 40 hours and more uh, per week with, with me in, in various aspects of, of the ministry, um, and uh, I don't know if she wants to say anything, at least say hi. Hello. <laughs> no, it, it is a joy to be here with you all, and um, I am so thankful, especially for um, Pastor uh, Matt Postiff and uh, those on the hackathon, um, but, but all that you as a church family are doing to help and be supportive and uh, encourage the work of Bibles International. We're so thankful, and um, we're happy to be a part in a small way, and uh, whatever we can do to try to help make um, the hackathons more effective, the um, Bible apps more uh, successful, um, because as really the two of us are sh making this shift to the scripture engagement, we're both very burdened and desire that um, God's people will be able to truly use his word, not just be excited that they own it now, but um, that they can actually really use it. We're so blessed here in the U.S. to have... Um, commentaries and devotionals and universities and preachers and Sunday school teachers and parents who have taught us um, growing up and we know the word and we know how to study the word and we know how to uh, explain and talk to others about the word and we get to these places in India and Myanmar where uh, there are churches with preachers and Bibles and yet we see they're not they're just not making the connections properly. They don't know what to do with it. They want to. They desire to. They love God. They love his people. Um, and they know the basics of salvation. But they just aren't growing because they don't know 
what to do with the word. So we're excited to try to help them in all sorts of ways wherever they are. Um, and so we're definitely excited about it together. And as, as the Lord has redirected us within Bibles International still uh, to be more part of that side of the ministry and help Bibles International grow in that uh, interrelating the people that we serve with the text that we produce, um, I, I see and I'm finding just hour by hour here working yesterday and then being here today, uh, we are growing and advancing in the direction that Pastor Matt Postiff has been all on his own mm-hmm. in a volunteer effort, mm-hmm. uh, pushing and, uh, and, and encouraging mm-hmm. uh, with the app development and such. And so uh, I look forward to working actually a lot more closely now that it's my official role uh, with, with the team and, uh, and with Pastor Matt. So thank you, thank you Elizabeth. <laughs> and as you can uh, see, I'm a very privileged man to have to have a wife who's just as burdened as I am about being in this ministry. I asked uh, the Lord, I told him uh, as a single guy that uh, you know, he could do whatever he wanted, but it was on my checklist, if I, if I had one, uh, that the Lord would give personal fulfillment to, in the ministry to the woman that he brought into my life. And he has. And he's growing that, uh, growing that in, in her more and more and more. And as he has for both of us, he's given us uh, a direction to, to go in that way. If you would please, join with me this morning in turning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I appreciate also the uh, the words from Pastor Matt about the, the Bible being reality. The Bible being the foundation, the truth. Uh, just last week, we uh, I was able to um, we were able to share at a couple churches you know, more towards the Detroit side of things, and we took off right around sun, sunrise. There was a beautiful blue sky. Uh, and we could see even the pinks and the purples. It was with blue puffy clouds, uh, a real beautiful thing to see. And 15 minutes later, it was completely foggy. Like not only foggy gray up above, completely overcast, but also you could barely see 150 yards in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Michigander myself. Uh, this is not anything new to us, of course. Um, of course, if you go anywhere in the States, they'll complain about, or brag, brag complain about the weather and the traffic, uh, you know, wherever you go. But still, um, as I saw it such, from my perspective, where I was on the road that morning, things changed so much. It got me thinking that there are times in life that are very similar to that. There are times in life when truth seems to contradict reality. Fifteen minutes later, it seems like there's hardly a sun anywhere. Right? Truth is truth, and it always will be. We know that. As Christians, we know that. And yet, sometimes it seems that reality is reality. And that reality that we, that we come across, that we stumble across, that sort of slaps us in the face, or comes over us as an overcast, it seems kind of scary. It can be sometimes really confusing. We can feel upended or be tempted to become upset because from our perspective, sometimes life just doesn't seem to square with truth and we don't see the way forward. But praise the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. John fourteen six. As we follow him, we learn more and more that the truth of the word of God is the most valuable, the most essential, the most necessary anchor for our souls and guide for every step of faith in this life, let alone, of course, the promise and the hope of eternal glory in the next. In the Bible translation world, 
the intentional, effective interaction with God's word is called scripture engagement. We all need to constantly and consistently be bringing ourselves face to face with the written word of God. Interacting with it. Applying it to our lives in ways that accurately appropriate the meaning of that word and honors God by our faith-filled, obedient responses to it. We should all engage with Scripture as we follow Christ. As we look together today at Scripture engagement in the mission of Christ, Scripture engagement in the teaching of Christ, and Scripture engagement in the disciples of Christ, the message God has for you today is this. Engage with Scripture as you follow Christ. First, we'll take a look at Scripture engagement in the mission of Christ. Of course, you could say that Christ's mission was, was multiple and that his mission was to give us the Beatitudes. Right? His mission was to give us teaching. Uh, John calls Christ the Word. That is, the revelation. I love, as, a, as someone focused on linguistics, I love that metaphor. He is the revelation. Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where do our words come from? They come from the thoughts. The very thoughts of God, the very who God is, is revealed to us in the God-man, Jesus Christ. But the incarnation provides some insurmountable challenges of understanding for our finite minds. Christ was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. So, for instance, as God, he was still omnipotent. But as man, he was still hungry at times, thirsty and in pain. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8 through eight give us this explanation of the incarnation of Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we see this, this stair step of humility. The stair step of being humbled and humbling himself. Right? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being, the, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I believe this morning, in our first point here, we're going to be looking at the juncture, that point at which the, the, the last two steps occur. He knew that he would be dying. And then he came to that point, once again, where he would die the death of the cross. We look now back in amazement on the night of Christ's death in Matthew chapter 26, where he willingly gave up his life to pay the debt for every sinner, even while suffering at the hands of some of those sinners. But as it approached, we see into the human nature of the God-man, Jesus Christ, in a way that we do in few, if any, other places in Scripture. We're going to start looking at verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, please with me. Verse 36. We'll be reading from the ESV this morning. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, listen to this with me. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter, to enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, 
Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. My question for us this morning as we investigate this, as we think about this, what is Christ saying in this prayer? Was he shirking his messianic responsibilities? Was he somehow uninformed about what was going to happen? Well, we know that Christ knew what was going to be, what was going to happen. We don't know sometimes what exactly Christ know, knew or what he didn't at the time he asked the Father if there could be a different way that he could accomplish the grueling painful task that the Father had for him. But we do know that Christ was not ignorant concerning the general details of what was about to happen. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, Christ gives a remarkably detailed description. It says this, And taking the twelve, he said to them, again, this is earlier in his earthly ministry, right? He said, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What is that? Everything that is written. As just a side note here, several times Christ in the in his earthly ministry refers to the law of Moses in general. He talks about the law uh, in general and then says some general principle or cites some particular reference. But many times he says it is written. The grammar of those texts is in the perfect kind of tense. It says, it has been written. His concept is this. It stands written. There is no changing it. It is in stone. Okay? And many times when he says that, he then cites a particular passage that talks about his upcoming death and resurrection. And this is what we have here. In Luke chapter 18, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, and will be shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. That's quite detailed, isn't it? And he knew this. And he talked about it before. And when he talked about it before, he said, this is what is written in the scriptures that must happen. Okay? This is what he says. So what was he doing when he prays in verse 39? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Let me ask you this. How many of you have been skydiving? Anybody here? I have. I have. It wasn't really on my bucket list. <laughs> and it's not now. Um, I, I enjoyed it, but I don't really need to do it again. Uh, I was doing it with the, with the group as a, a graduation uh, gift, that whole uh, scenario, for my sister who graduated from West Point. And uh, I remember watching the required video before signing the waiver for it. Basically, they were telling me you know, that we know that what you're about to do is stupid. It's really stupid. <laughs> in fact, we learned later that they would cancel or my, my life insurance policy like would be null and void if I went on this and died doing it. Um, but uh, here I am, thankfully, <laughs> on the other side. But I, they told me what I was going to do. They, I, I was going to be strapped to somebody who actually knew what they were going to do, okay? knew what they were doing, who had lots of experience doing it, um, literally like latched uh, onto the person on, on my back, and then we were just going to lean, that's all we were going to do, lean toward the window, that open window of a perfectly good operating airplane, right? And I was going to walk out that door, um, lean, and then lean away, and then lean out, and that's it. That's all it takes. So when it, took, when it came time for my turn, I was, again, attached to somebody behind me, right? So I waddled over to the, to the door, and I had this <gasps> kind of moment. Like, there's the world below, and I'm going to do this. What in the world am I thinking? Right? I believe that's what's going on in our passage in Matthew. This was a genuine, completely natural human prayer to the Father at this 
kind of moment. Christ knew ahead of time. He had been given the instructions. He even cited those instructions to other people. We know he knew this. And yet, when it came time, he prayed to the Father. And what did the Father do? Well, in Luke, we found we find that in between prayer number two and prayer number three, that prayer time, right? He went away, came back to the disciples, went away, came back, went away. In between number two and three, there was an angel that came that strengthened him or ministered to him. Now, he just came from dinner, so he didn't strengthen the angel, I believe, personally, didn't strengthen Jesus the way the angel strengthened uh, Elijah back in First Kings uh, to give him food and give him strength that way. But I believe the angel was a messenger from the Father to Jesus to remind him of Scripture he already knew. What was the prayer? If it be possible, let this pass. But, and again, we find the humility, the absolute humility, the example of the God-man to say in the same breath, this is not about me, Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So then, why do I say that it was the scripture that was on his mind? Let's keep reading and look down to verse 52. Remember that Christ, just minutes earlier, was in the worst anxiety and agony of his life. But hear what he tells both Peter and the mob. Where did this mob come? Well, after Christ prays three times on this hill just to the east of Jerusalem, Judas walks up with a mercenary mob and gives the supposedly friendly kiss on Jesus' cheek, which is actually a predetermined sign to his henchmen to grab Christ. Peter, always the impetuous one, whips out his sword and flails at a guy we know his name is Malchus, right, who has better cat-like reflexes than Peter and loses an ear instead of his head. And surprisingly, perhaps, Christ reaches down and heals the guy's ear. And then, verse 52, Jesus says this to Peter, But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father? Let's pause. What did Jesus just get done doing? He was praying to the Father. He was praying to the Father and said, Father, I need your help. I need your support. And what was the message back from the Father? Was it, was, was it something like, well, <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. You're on your own now. No. Jesus says, don't you know, I can right now pray to the Father and the Father will give me, he will empty out for me, he will be very willing to empty out for me all of the heavenly resources available. He says, or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? But then what does he say? Follow the logic, please, with me in verse 54. But how then could the, what? The scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus. He had just been praying, Father, if it be possible, what is the answer? What was the prayer answered? What was the answer to Christ's prayer from the Father? It is not possible. In fact, it must happen exactly this way. Why? Because the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Christ says to Peter, don't you dare think that this is in your hands, Peter. The disciples thought that too. That's why, just a couple of minutes later here, all of them take off. Because it's out of their hands. And they think, ah! Right? And they run away. Peter whips out his sword. And, Peter, and, and Jesus says to Peter, this is not about you, Peter. You cannot handle this. And he says that to his friend, right? His faithful friend, the leader of the disciples, Peter. But then, verse 55, in, the, in that hour, that means at the same time, basically, Peter, and Jesus, turns on his heel and says the same thing to the angry mobs, to his mercenary enemies who are there to take him away to his death eventually, right? Verse 55, in that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done and he says the same thing. That the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
He says to Peter, this is not in your hands, Peter. Then he says to the angry mob, with whom he's about to just walk along with and submit to, and he says to them, this is not about you either. This is not in your power. If it was in your power, you would have done this long ago because I know you are no more envious now than you were a couple months ago or a few days ago. Why did you not take me before? This is why. Because the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook them and fled. I believe, again, that angel reminded Christ of Scriptures he already knew. That Scripture engagement in the mission of Christ. At the point where he was lowest, at the point where he most sincerely needed the help and support of the Father, he turned to the Father, and I believe God the Father enabled him to walk forward with confidence in the will of God because he came face to face again with the Scriptures and and remembered the infallibility of the Scriptures. He remembered that Scripture must be fulfilled, that all the prophecies have to turn out exactly the way God said they would and he confidently walked forward. That scripture engagement in the mission of Christ. We're going to look now at scripture engagement in the teaching of Christ. If you would please turn with me to Luke chapter 24. On the very day of the resurrection, Christ comes to a couple who are walking home on a road that goes to the village of Emmaus. When Jesus asks about the local news, they explain everything that they've seen and heard recently in the Jerusalem. And they say, um, hello, traveler, where have you been? Right? And it's kind of surprising to me, I like to call this the Emmaus Road Smackdown. The Emmaus Road Smackdown. Because this is his response, Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now these are nice guys, right? And I think it's a couple. I mean, these are nice people. They actually liked Jesus, and they were disappointed that he got crucified. Right? But he says, O foolish ones, verse 25, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is again the first like teaching of Christ after his resurrection. Is Christ saying different things now that he said right before his crucifixion? No, he's saying the same thing. He's pointing back to the written word of God. In verse 26, Was it not necessary necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Their response among themselves we find after he vanished, after giving the the blessing of the bread later, we find in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. That's the Emmaus Road smackdown, I like to say. And then the Galilee Seminar. Look down to verse 44 with me. Christ had said to the disciples to meet him in Galilee after the resurrection. For good measure, because after all we know the disciples forget things, right? He told the women on the road earlier in the day of his resurrection, he said, now, okay, now remind those guys, please, tell them again, I'm going to meet them in Galilee, Okay. Remember, we're going to meet in Galilee. Got it? Galilee. Me, you, Galilee. We're going to meet there. Okay? And if we do the math, it seems like about 10 days after the resurrection, he does meet them there. And then it's about 40 days after the resurrection that he ascends into heaven. So in that, perhaps we could say, 30-day seminar, what did Jesus teach? Did Jesus say, hey guys, I'm alive again. Now I have your attention and so I'm going to teach you things you've never heard before. No. I believe we find here in Luke chapter 24 the most explicit account of what the post-resurrection teaching of Jesus was. Okay, In verse 44, he's with them in Galilee. Verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you see? This is the same logic. It's the same thing he's talking about. Why does he say Moses, prophet, Psalms? Well, this is how a Jewish person, even today, refers to what we would call the Old Testament. 
Okay? They call it the Tanakh. T-N-K is their acrostic for Tanakh. The Torah is the law. And then the Nabi'im is prophets, literally. And then the Kethuvim, writings. Okay? So T-N-K, the Tanakh, is what we, what Jewish people even today call this. And so, Christ refers to the entirety of scripture, of written scripture at that point, and he says, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the Psalms are, perhaps we could see that as the first book in the writings and the biggest book in the writings, so the law, prophets, writings, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the scriptures written about me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written. We've seen this, haven't we? He, he invokes that again. It stands written in the word of God. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, number two, and number three, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If you compare this with Acts chapter one, it looks very much like the Great Commission there. Acts and Luke were written by Luke, right? But what Christ says here is that all of this is a fulfillment of scriptures. Do you see that? Verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written. It stands written. What stands written? That the Messiah should suffer. I mean, that, that was a big, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us even that. A big stumbling block for Jewish people, then and now, that the Messiah should suffer. But he says, according to the Scriptures, it has to be. The one who is the Lord of Lords in Isaiah is also the suffering servant. It has to be this way. It has to be that he rises from the dead. Why? Because it's predicted from the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says this, it has to be that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It has to be that way. Let me remind us this morning. You and I, right now, are in the age of the fulfillment of number 3 of Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. Christ had to suffer. Did he suffer? He certainly did. He came to earth. He suffered. He died. He was crucified. Right? He died. He was buried. He rose again the third day, conquering sin, death, and hell. Praise the Lord. And he ascended into heaven. Okay? So, then number two, he rose. Number three. What is number three? That, that Christ himself says is predicted in the Old Testament and has to happen because the Word of God says it has to happen. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says it this way. It begins at Jerusalem and then goes to Samaria. Excuse me. And goes to all Judea. And then goes to Samaria. And then goes to the uttermost part of the earth. Right? This is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus says. This is Scripture engagement in the teaching of Christ. And lastly, Scripture engagement in the disciples of Christ. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. So the Spirit comes. It's the day of Pentecost. And as I've reminded us, right now we are still in that time period, that dispensation, we say, of, that, that extends from the beginning at the, um, the day of Pentecost and extends on through until when? Till when? Starts at Pentecost, goes till the rapture. Okay? So until Jesus comes in the clouds and calls us home, up until that time, we are in the, the age right now that is still under this command. At the beginning of that command, the Holy Spirit was given. They, what, it was given at the day of Pentecost. And Peter gave forward something that shows the disciples got it. If we look at the book of Matthew, uh, and even the other uh, Gospels as well, but especially Matthew, 
Matthew says, as he's giving the narrative of the, of the teaching of Christ, he's giving the narrative of the events of the life of Christ, he stops and says, oh, wait, 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 wait. I have to tell you, this happened that it might be fulfilled. Right? And then he tells more about the life of Christ and he says, this happened that it might be fulfilled. Where did Matthew get that? I believe he got that from the post-resurrection teaching of Christ that said, thus it is written that these things had to happen this way. And that was the 30-day seminar that Christ gave before his ascension. Now, here, Peter, the leader of the disciples, at the day of Pentecost, we get a clear view that this is what God had for them just 10 days after the ascension. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, argues for the necessity of the resurrection of, in Acts chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, Peter is saying, to the gathered crowd with, who are seeing and marveling at this tongue, the tongues of fire and hearing uh, these guys speak in languages they'd never learned before. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was, do you see this terminology here? Peter, the disciple, is using this terminology for. Now, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Back in the garden, Christ was in anxiety. Back in the garden, Christ was in need of help from the Father, which he received. Back in the garden, Peter was sleeping. Moments later, back in the garden, Peter whipped out his sword. He didn't understand. Back in the garden, Jesus had to say, thus it must happen because the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. Now, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says in verse 24, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why, Peter? Why was it not possible? Next verse, verse 25. For David says concerning him. And we're not going to look at the passage there, but Peter goes on insightfully to say that David's now dead. Okay, we all know David's dead. You know where he's buried. But David, before Jesus, was a prophet. And he said that God the Father is not going to let the Messiah's corpse rot in the grave. And God the Father gave that promise through David the prophet. And because that was written down, because David wrote it down, it could not happen any other way. It was not possible for death to keep the grip on Jesus. It was not possible for the chains of death not to be broken. Why? Because David the prophet said these things. Do you see how Peter caught it? Peter caught the logic. If the Bible says it, it's got to happen. And it's got to happen that way. This is scripture engagement in the disciples of Jesus. You and I today are the disciples of Christ. You and I today have the same, the same great commission. You and I are disciples if we are true followers of Christ, right? If we have truly the Holy Spirit within us, we are children of God. We have redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. If that is you today, and I trust that is true for you today, if that is true for you today, then you are a disciple. What is a disciple? It's a learner follower. The more you learn, the better you follow. The more you follow, the more you want to learn. We are learner followers of Jesus. As we follow Christ, then we need to learn from Him. Hebrews chapter 12 says, not just that there was joy set before Him and He endured those sufferings, but we can learn from His sufferings. Consider Him who endured such, such persecution of sinners against Him so that we would not be weary in our souls. Let me ask you today, are there circumstances that come and overcloud, overshadow your way? 
from your perspective, are there even recent events that you think, wow, is living a life for Christ even going to be worth it? Jesus says, it must be fulfilled that his word would be proclaimed to all nations through his followers. Jesus showed us through his example that in his darkest time of need, in his darkest hour, he himself could go to the Father, could plead to the Father to give him scriptures that he knew would give him the strength to carry on. Everything we need for life and godliness, brothers and sisters, is in the Word of God. God has not left anything out. God has not left us. He has not left us. He is not silent. He does not leave us without support. We have in His Scriptures absolutely everything we need to follow Christ in the way that we ought. And as we follow Christ's example in the garden, we know that we can pray to God and He will answer us in one way. One way that He will answer us is bringing back to mind Scriptures that we already know so that we can walk by faith confidently into the teeth of whatever uncertainty He has in front of us knowing that his word will never, never, ever fail. Do you have that confidence? Does the unsaved world have that confidence? We look around, we listen to the news. I don't know if you listen to the news anymore. It's very easy not to, I would say, nowadays, right? Do they have... A solid foundation? Do they have a concrete, firm foundation? Absolutely not. Our very nation, the foundation of morality is crumbling and perhaps even the whole nation will crumble on top of it. Does that unsettle you? It can be tempting sometimes, can't it? From our perspective, from our little look on life, it looks like There's only bad things coming sometimes. Whether it's a clunk, 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 clunk in the car that we rely on, or it's the ruining of some other plans, or or I get sick or somebody else gets sick and so we can't have our event. God's Word always stands secure. And the God, our Father, who gave it to us, has given us the foundation that we can always stand upon Be a bright and shining testimony to those around you that you are not moved. You are not shaken. You have a foundation that is worth standing upon and is worth trusting in no matter what circumstances. Engage with Scripture as you follow Christ. What is your attitude towards Scripture? What is your understanding towards the benefit of Scripture in your life? God has given us His Scripture not so that we can put it on a shelf, but so that we can bring it before our face. We can interact with it. We can trust the words it said. We can, we can dive into it. We can wrestle with it. We can give it questions that will always be answered in effective ways by the Scripture itself. He's given us a body of believers that we can rub shoulders with and ask questions and get answers. He's given us leadership so that we can use the talents and the abilities, the spiritual gifts that God has given us to help edify each other, build us up in the body of Christ through the Word of God. Ephesians 4.15 tells us, as we speak the truth to each other in love. God has given us His Word so that we can engage with it. We need reminders. It's worth being reminded that God's Word is trustworthy. We need commitment. It's worth being committed to the teachings of the written Word. And we need persistence. It's worth taking that teaching to those who need it. This week, you and I as followers of Christ must follow Christ. In order to do so, and as we do, I want to encourage us to engage with Scripture this week so that we can be, by God's grace, better Christ followers. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for your word, for being with us, for giving us your word in a way in which we can always learn and grow. Father, there are places in your word that are hard to understand. And you've given those to us so that we can dig, so that we can ruminate, so that we can really plunge into the deep truths there. I pray, Father, that you would help us to take this opportunity of remembering what Christ has done for us and remembering that he himself needed to be reminded of the scriptures that he knew so that he could carry out the mission that he has given to, that that you had given to him. And even now, Lord, you have given us a mission. You have given us a mission to carry out, and that is that your name would be honored and that your truth would be carried out. The message of Christ would be carried out to all nations. Lord, not any one of us can go to every nation, and yet you've given us different opportunities, different responsibilities in various ways to use the gifts that you've given us. And I pray that you would help us to utilize your word so that we can carry out those missions individually, respectively, in the, in the world in which you've put us. We thank you, Father, for granting us salvation through Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be more and more faithful in our following of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray these things. Amen.